Happy Easter, happy Resurrection Sunday. Oh, man. It, it's not decaf out there, so I don't know what the problem is. All right, let's try this again. I don't, know, you, I don't know if you guys know this, but I did children's church for about eight years. That's where I taught. That's why I can keep everybody's attention, actually. So here's, here's what I want to I do. How many of you guys come from a churchy background? Churchy background. Anybody? Okay. Now, when I say he is risen, what are you supposed to say from a churchy perspective? He is risen indeed. Okay. We're not going to do that. So what we're going to do, because I don't, I don't like churchy stuff. I want to I talk about Jesus. I don't want to talk about a checklist. So here's what I want. I want us to go, he is risen, and this side just yells, he is risen, and then together we yell, woohoo. Is that, is that good? All right? So this side, he is risen. As loud as you can, let's hear it. He is risen. All right? That was close. The timing was a little off. No drummers on that side. All right, here we go. Ready? He is risen. He is risen. And then together, woohoo! There we go. That was the least churchy thing that I could figure out for us to do. The beauty of the church, oh, I don't want to get on a different sermon. I'll save that for next weekend. So for Easter, the exciting thing for Easter, you see up there the, the title and theme for this weekend is the name. You know, and a lot of times when you think of the word, the name, you have to think of what's in a name. Sometimes, you know, as parents, we would pick a special name for our kid. Sometimes we wouldn't pick a special name for our kid because we realize what it means. We were going to name one of our kids Caleb one time, and we found out that's the Hebrew word for dog. So we decided not to name him Caleb. Caleb with a K. So if Caleb with a K, then you're a Hebrew dog. Sorry. But um, so we, we were going to use a C to make it more Christian. But your family is tied to your name. When you go and do research, what do you look for? You look for your last name, and, and you kind of track it through, and you find out. Maybe you're excited about what you find. Maybe you act like you're not that person anymore because of what you find, whatever it is. But our name holds a lot. Sometimes it's an insult. For the Christians, Christian was not a compliment. It wasn't, oh, look, here comes Christians. And they go, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. They go, hey, look, there's some Christians. Start throwing rocks. It was an insult. Because they're trying to follow that Jesus Christ person. And Christianity today is starting to have that stigma, but it's still confusing. In fact, modern American English and culture has very little regard for name. We don't really understand. If there's a name of, of uh, for example, if, if name itself was what mattered, then everybody that has the name Jesus is who we can put our trust in because it's similar to Jesus. We get confused a lot of times with names. Sometimes names, how many of you are one of those people that can never pronounce a name and you're always the one that has to call it out? How many of you are teachers in here? There's only two, two three, four. You try and call out a name. How difficult is it? It's terrible. How many people butchered my compound name? School field. Now, how hard is that? It's apparently impossible. I've gotten pizzas delivered to Skullfield, Schoenfeld. Wait for this. There was a stoner in high school. He called me Schoolenmeyer because he couldn't read my handwriting. We, we Names. We're, we're used to it. We call each other names. We insult people with certain names, whatever it is. But with God, when we go through the Old Testament, we see the concept of a name. It's actually very different than what we would think of today. 
The name itself was very unique because you tied back a lineage to a father and a grandfather and a great-grandfather. And it was a very important thing to those people. For the Old Testament, name actually means nature, the very character of that person. So if you would say, put your hope in the name of the Lord, in the name of Yahweh, you would be putting your hope in his character, in his nature. You wouldn't be putting your hope in like, hey, yeah, I claim the name YHVH. Yes, we're good. That's dumb. That's just like James says, listen, faith without works is stupid. It doesn't work. You can't just claim it. There's got to be a nature that we're calling on at that point in time. For example, if you called somebody, how many of you have that? How many of you are not mechanically inclined? Your car breaks and you just drive it at the dump because you're not going to fix it. How many of you? Okay. Those are the people you don't call when you have a car problem, right? You don't call them up and go, hey, it's making a noise. Yeah, mine is too. That's as far as it gets. Why? Why would you not do that? Because their nature and their character cannot provide what you need. So you don't call on that name. You go somewhere else that says Billy Bob's Auto Shop, and you call them, and they're like, yeah, absolutely. Got an oak tree over here. We'll just jack that thing up. We're good to go. At least that's what my yard's always like. And in the New Testament, in Greek, that, that whole name concept is, is expanded even more. It means prestige, honor, legacy, and nature and character. Now, that's kind of weird for me because my name's Joe. And I get all kinds of jokes. The average Joe. Joe Schmo, Joe whatever. Joe Mama. All those things. It all works together. It doesn't feel special until you know my character. Then you realize it actually isn't that special. No, I, I have something to me that's not just the letters and words. It's the character and the experiences and the wisdom and whatever it is, and that's for each of you guys. You know, if you have a friend of yours, you have two friends named Bob, and someone says, you invite Bob over for dinner, and you go, well, which one? Because there's one Bob that's going to eat all your food and then rummage in your fridge that's in the garage where you hide certain things, and then you get the other Bob who's going to play with the animals and hang out with the cats in the back because he's an introvert, a little quiet and stuff. It means something different depending upon the Bob you choose because of character. So this morning, I want to go into an, the name of God. What, is that, what does that mean? Why throughout Scripture does it say whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved? Because a lot of us would think, yeah, sure, I went forward and I said, Jesus is who I need. But we didn't call on his character because of our pride. Jesus is who I need, but you know, his character requires that I follow him and obey everything he says. And I just need the whole guilt thing, God. Just take care of the guilt thing. Well, I don't want to do anything else. Well, then we're not calling on his nature because his very nature is perfection and holiness. His very nature is a provider. His very nature, the, name, the word Shua means salvation. That's where they get the name Yah, Shua, God, our salvation. Jesus is where that name comes from. God, our salvation. And at the beginning of creation before time, God had a vision. He, he expresses it throughout Scripture, but I want us to look at this point up here for this morning. He expresses this point for us that, that his, his goal for us as creator has been to be in us and empower us to find our everything in him. Now, some of us would say amen. You're like, yeah, I got that. Yeah, I've heard that in church my whole life. I heard that last Easter. I heard this, you know, in Christmas, whatever it was. But, but here's what I want us to realize Everything means everything. 
So if you're, if you're here and, and you're kind of a regular hearer, you, you've heard me say this before. My kids hate it when I say this. You could say he wants to find our all in him. So if I come up to you and I hand you a pack of bacon, it's uncooked, and I say, I'd like for you to cook all the bacon and give it to me, how much of the bacon do I want? All of it. Every bit of it. And if I say, go get a dozen donuts, and you bring them back, how many dozen donuts, when I say I want all the donuts, how many of those dozen donuts do I want? All of them. And if it's from down the road, that's 13 in their dozen pack. Praise the Lord. <laughs> he, wa- he wants, he, we have food afterwards, so we, he wants our everything. That means when everything is hitting the fan, he still wants our trust and belief. When everything is perfect, he still wants our trust and belief. When everything is perfect and then hits the fan, in the midst of that, he still wants our true faith. So when he wants our everything, I want us to look at Genesis to see what he did to make that happen. And this is something that we may have heard before as Christians. We heard this concept of you were built or created in the image of God. Does that make sense? Have you heard that before? If you haven't, you will now. It's in Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, the small animals that scurry along the ground. It's just one verse, but the whole concept is that God built us to be in the image of him. Now, let me break that down some because it's hard to understand the whole image. Is it a mirror? Is it a painting? Is it whatever? This concept in the Old Testament comes from other religious beliefs around that you could carve an image, you could paint a painting, or you could create some sort of artistic expression, and therefore your God would inhabit that and it would do what you wanted to. The most common we know of are idols, and they would build them with carved mouths open to receive that unholy spirit and do their bidding. But when the creator says, hey, We're going to create in my image, meaning that I'm going to build humans for me to inhabit, not inanimate, useless rocks and gold and wood and all that junk, which is deaf, dumb, and stupid, but I'm going to build humans to contain me. And that's what he built us to be, is to contain him. And that's why so many people will say you have a God-shaped hole in your life and and you have all these things going on where you're meant to be filled by him and nothing else. And everything that you try doesn't finish it, doesn't fill. No matter how hard or how long you go after, whatever it is, it's never complete. There's always a little bit more that we need. Always. It never finishes the job because it can't. It can't. So God created us to be completely inhabited with him. And that's where completion is found. That's where purpose is found, is in him. Acts chapter 17. You'll see it up on the screen. There's a great sermon going along. And he talks about the creator God to these people. And he says, listen, the God who made the world and everything in it, this master of sky and land, doesn't live in custom-made shrines. He doesn't have buildings he needs. He doesn't need the human race to run errands for him. See, what's happening here is he's making fun of these other gods. As if he could take care of himself. Sorry, couldn't take care of himself. He makes the creatures. The creatures don't make him. And he continues on going through Scripture, quoting things from the Old Testament, starting from scratch. 
He made the entire human race, made the earth hospitable with plenty of time and space for living. He made something perfect for us so we could seek after God and not just grope around in the dark, but actually find him. He doesn't play hide and seek with us. He's not remote. He's near. It's, he's not like me. I can't wait for the Easter that we have soft snow and do an Easter egg hunt with my kids with white eggs. I'm a terrible human, but that's not God. That's not God. And some of you are still thinking about that idea and you can't wait to do it because you're human like me. God's whole intent was for himself to be found. That's why we sit in this miracle. If you go to Alaska and call this an accident, you don't have your eyes open. It is not an accident. This place is phenomenal. It's amazing. So it's not an accident that, that, that the earth is created the way it is, the way that things go. And then there was a poet that he quotes. We live and move in him. We can't get away from him. One of your poets said it well. We are the God created. It's an amazing thing that whether we choose to admit it or not, we exist within God's will. Whether we choose to admit it or not, we do. I want us to continue on with this point here. Something happened, though. And sin began to enter into the human race. And man traded an eternal, follow these, these points here, eternal spiritual relationship with a loving father and creator. There was a trade made. There was a trade made because we could. There was free will. If you guys didn't hear it from last week, the Q&A Sunday, we talked about evil and the goodness of God and how choice is required for real love. He gave us a choice. And unfortunately, here's the choice we made. We made a trade for temporal, physical relationship with the creation. When the tempter came up and said, no, 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 you're not going to die. You're going to get to be parallel with him. Which is his whole stinking problem from the beginning before time. Is that he can be equal with the creator. And gives us the same thing. So in our foolishness, we have a choice in front of us. We have the loving creator God, and then we have this desire of, well, well, I kind of like this over here. And what did we choose as the human race? We chose the wrong. We chose the wrong direction. Man chose to try and control his own destiny, broke the creator's design. You can write down in your notes Genesis chapter 3. Why? Because there's a spiritual force that wants the human race destroyed. And I know this sounds like sci-fi, but sci-fi gets its ideas from the Bible. If you don't read the Bible and go, man, that is some sci-fi stuff, you are missing it. That is good sci-fi right there. We have a spiritual force that wants us dead and crushed. How do you say that, Joe? Satan is running around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Jesus says that what he exists to do what? To kill, to steal, to destroy. We have an enemy. Since the beginning of time, he can't stand the fact that Genesis 1.26 says, I'm going to give the humans control over all of this. And so he's had a brat attack for 2,000, no, I don't know, 6,000 years if you're a young earth person. And wants to kill us. Absolutely wants us destroyed. But here, here, here's, here's really where we sit. We were given free choice 
and we chose evil. We chose our path. If you come out here and you're at the park's highway and you choose to go right and end up in Anchorage and you wanted to be in Fairbanks, I'm sorry. You can complain that it's not like Fairbanks all you want. It ain't going to make it Fairbanks. It's Anchorage. I know. We, it's hard to think about having to go that direction. I get it. But it doesn't change the fact that we made a wrong choice and we should have hung a left. It doesn't. So we chose evil as a human race. And we continue in that, and we create a problem. A problem that actually God knew about, and we'll get into that in just a minute, but a problem that the designed and created denies their designer and creator. Now, that doesn't exist in the logical world anywhere else except for the human mind. You don't see the cup going here going, I don't want to hold water. I don't believe I was made, I made myself. There's no snowman out there ripping the carrot out of their nose going, I made me. None of us would ever look at a building and say, well, man, that's awesome, fell out of the sky just like that. The simplest forms, we would absolutely say there's a designer and a creator and a purpose. But with the most complex being ever found on earth, the human body, it's a whoops. No. No, we've chosen to deny that we were created and that we were designed. We have. And the issue that that brings us to is that we now are the fallen. We've fallen from where God wanted us to be, where we were designed to be. It's like purchasing an incredible vehicle. You would pay $120,000 for the latest massive truck, massive tires and everything, and it's beautiful and stays in a parking lot. That's not doing the purpose that it was called to do. And you should make fun of people that don't have mud on a big truck. Mine has dirt on it, so you don't make fun of me. We deny the actual purpose for us. And so in the life of the fallen, we get to this point where we've chosen to deny the truth and the purposes of God. And when we deny the truth and the purposes of God, you know what that does? That puts us in a position when we say, God, you change. I'm right. We wouldn't do that to a state trooper, but we'd try and do that to the Almighty? Think of that, but we do that. When we say to God, well, I don't know if I agree with that, God. Let's just put it this way. He actually doesn't care if you agree. But on the other side of that, he wants to start with one problem. Do you want to be his creation or not? Do you want to be his and devoted to him or not? All the other problems that people have and and beliefs and so on, he'll fix that. I remember talking with someone one time, and, and actually just this week we were talking about it. He said, Joe, you know, how do, I, how do I witness to somebody who has these different sins in their life? And I said, honestly, the only focus that we need to have from an evangelistic perspective, see, the issue with Christianity is that we've turned Christianity in, you need to go from gay to straight. We've turned Christianity in, you need to go from fornicating to not fornicating, from unmarried to married, you need to go from sin to no sin, from good to, for bad to good, whatever it is. That is not Christianity, guys. Christianity is lost to found, and then all the stupid gets fixed. If we're trying to convert people and ungay them and unbad them and unfornicate them, we are wasting our time because that is the work of Jesus. That is the work of Jesus. 
And so it's none of those things of immoral to moral. It's lost to found. It's broken to brand new. We bring our trash, and he makes us a treasure. That's our God. That's how he works. And I want us to realize something. In that context, when we call out to God and his name, he answers because of his nature and character, not because of us. I didn't do anything right. And God said, okay, finally, I'll listen to you. He's not the grumpy, vindictive parent that we all can be. Well, until you do what I want, I'm not talking to you. Call it a marriage, call it parenting, call it friendship. We do all of that all the time. Welcome to the lack of agape in our life, lack of unconditional love. But God, while we sat there sinning in his face, I told a testimony of a guy that I knew that before Christ used to break into churches and have sex with his girlfriends, looking at the crucifix to spit in the face of this so-called God. And he said, I don't, I'm getting goosebumps right now. He says, Joe, I don't, I don't get it why he would listen to my voice after I did that to him. I don't either. That's agape. That's agape. Let's read in Psalm. You'll see it here on the screen, Psalm 138. It says, I bow before your holy temple as I worship. I praise your name for your unfailing love and faithfulness. He, he lists off the character traits in his name that he wants us to understand. For your promises are backed by all the honor of your name. If I said to you something, you didn't know me at all, and I said, I promise you, I'll give you 50 bucks next week. There's no reason for any of you to believe me if you don't know me. In fact, some of you who know me might still not believe me. Why? Because you don't know the character of me. But what David is saying in all of his life, or the psalmist here, all of his life, the character and the honor, when God says something, that's backed by the real deal. And the actions that come from that promise, I want us to look at here, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners, fornicating with our girlfriend in the church. While we were in the middle of being as high as anything, while we were robbing, while we were stealing, while we were committing adultery, while we were blaspheming his name, he said, I still love you. I love you. Will you take it? Will you take my love? Will you take my forgiveness? Some people have struggled, and it, it, it raises the hair on my arms in frustration with this whole concept. Corey Asbury wrote a song called Reckless Love. Don't get caught up in the foolishness of people wondering, is that the right word to use? Forget that. Romans 5.8 says, our God made some really dumb ideas happen in the human mind. I'm sorry, I'm not going to do Romans 5.8 for you. Love you, but if you cut me off on the road, my first response is, Jesus loves you. My first response is, I wish I had a bigger bumper. I'm just being honest, and don't judge me because that's you too when I cut you off. But God doesn't make sense in our human mind when we want to get justice. We want to have something happen. When we come before God and say, that's not fair, God. I've got this bucket of trash and you are innocent. Let me take care of this myself. We can't. If I sin against you and I do something horrific to you, I can't forgive me. You have to forgive me because I did it against you. And we've done something against God. We've chosen to take worship he designed for him 
and turn it towards other gods, other spirits, other powers, or simply nothing for ourselves. And it's pointless. It doesn't give us what God created us to be given. But God knew when he created the world that we would make the wrong choice. Now, you, know, you might look at that slightly differently, and, and when you read First Peter, you see that verse where he talks about that. He says, instead, you were bought by the priceless blood of Christ. He is a perfect lamb. He doesn't have any flaws at all. He's tying back into the Jewish culture. It says, he was chosen before God created the world, but he came into the world in these last days for you. The whole idea was before creation. And we can look at that in two ways. And I've heard this question before from many people. Why would God create us if he knew we would sin? How dare he? That's like planning for failure. And, and you kind of fall into that track. And, and I've watched a lot of Christians just fall on their face when an atheist comes up and says, what kind of God would do this? That's terrible. The problem is, outside of faulty logic, it's ignoring the whole picture, and the whole picture is this. What kind of God would create us knowing we would sin and not have a plan for a way out? That is a good God. I want love, therefore they need choice. If I give them choice, they're going to be dumb. So I'm going to give them a way out too. That's good. That's a good God. A God that knew before time that he could give us free choice to make whatever decisions we want to make, and we really need to make that choice for him. But if we don't, he's got a clause that says, a couple thousand years, after a couple thousand years of dumb things happening, I'm going to provide that way out. Because I know the wrong things are going to be made. So instead of quitting like a little baby like we would, he didn't. And in the perfect design of creation, he creates his humans with free will to say, I choose to or choose not to worship the creator. And then the outcome is some of them chose to, some of them chose not to. And he still provided that way out. It's a perfect design, actually. He knew that he would have to come to earth, provide a way out of the mess for his creation. And when Jesus died, he didn't just simply get buried and pop back up like whack-a-mole. When he died, he took everything that we deserve. Jesus went to hell. Now, we don't think about that sometimes. Where else is he going to go when he dies? Heaven? No, he was already there. He needed to accomplish the work and take the sin where it belongs and so he went to hell. And when he went there, he opened up and cracked open that can. You thought he was mean to the guys with the tables and the whip and everything else? Oh, no. He rose victoriously with the keys to death, the keys to hell, the entire purpose and goal. Before, realize this. Before Jesus rose from the dead, there was no resurrection in the new bodies. Every spirit was there from before Jesus. There was no, you die and go to heaven in the Old Testament. You died and you hung out. 
You were in the spiritual realm, but there was no way yet until Jesus came. You can read this as homework in 1 Peter chapter 2. It says, Jesus preached to the souls in prison. You read in Matthew chapter 27, and when Jesus died, there was a great earthquake. And what happened? All of a sudden, graves opened up, and people's family members are walking around the streets. Yes, it's there. You can turn there. I'm not blaspheming. Not heretical. Because that's the work that Jesus was doing. For those that chose to be delivered, they had it then. The, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection were not simply a point in history. It was massive. It was the day that the revolution began in the world of death because there was no victory over death before that. None. That's why Isaiah prophesied, said he will swallow up death. It's going to be gone. He's not going to pick it up and move it somewhere. It's going to be completely consumed in the life of Jesus. It's over. That's why when Peter says we have a living hope, we have a hope that we look that if we die today, it's not the end. This is the warm-ups. We're just hanging out here, earth stretching, and, and as soon as we die, that's the starting flag, not the checker flag for those in Christ. So we don't have the victory over death unless we're with him, unless his name, his nature is what we're depending upon. I can believe what someone says and hop on their trailer and say, hey, you going to Barrow? Yeah, I'm going to drive there. Okay, that ought to be interesting. And we hop in the trailer. Next thing we know, we're in Homer. We're like, hey, I didn't realize Barrow had so many hippies. I love Homerites. My wife wishes she could be one. Just because someone says, oh, yeah, I'm going to this place, just because we associate ourselves doesn't make us that. If I showed up at your house and sat down at your table and started eating food out of your refrigerator, if you didn't shoot me first, you're going to ask, who do you think you are? I'm going to say, hey, I'm a smith because I say so. No. I'm not, no. You're not going to come into my house and show up at my table. It's, hey, I decided I want to be a school field. <laughs> That's nice. You're not going to be able to talk in a minute. You don't just walk in and decide you want to be who you want to be because, well, that's the family that you think you want to be with. No, we have to say, can I be in that family? Now, in the earthly world, that still might not work because I might not let you in. But thank God he doesn't have those limits because all we have to do is say, God, I want to give up my name. I want to give up my way, and what I want is your name on my life. I want your character in me. I don't, I don't want the end. I want to start a new life. I want a beginning. And, and this message began in the New Testament. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. We then get into this whole concept of Easter and resurrection and so on. And I want us to realize something about our God's character. See, our God's character and his nature is to save. That's who he is. And I'm not just picking that one up going, I want to, you know, I want to sound Christian-y and Easter-y on Sunday. I'm going to chapter and verse you. Psalm 68, verse 20. What does he say? Our God is a God who saves. Our God is a God who saves. The sovereign Lord, that L-O-R-D is not L-O-R-D. It's actually Yahweh, the name of God, rescues us from death. That was a picture saying it's only God who's going to rescue us from death. It's only God that can do it. 
And so he made that picture and says that I am the God who saves. You can see it all over the Old Testament. I am the God who saves. I am the God who saves. And I love this, is that the resurrection of Jesus, which was recorded by many, many people, many, many eyewitnesses, the resurrection of Jesus says that his name, nature, character, is true. He is the God that saves. Death could not hold him down. There's victory over that death. And here's what I want us to think about. I don't care, I don't care where you guys are at. Whatever your claim is as far as Christianity or, or what it is that you're looking at, something might have died. I'll, I'll let you fix it. But I want all of us this morning to choose. Again, please, please don't confuse us with churchianity or, or, or Christian stuff or I said a prayer or whatever. Erase that like a whiteboard. Erase it from your mind. God says today, what is your choice? Do you want my name and nature in you or not. And the reason I say it that way is because it's a daily choice for us. It's a daily choice. Who do I serve today? Who do I serve today? Who do I serve today? It's not simply some sort of arrangement where we move into a house, lock the doors, and okay, we're good to go. That's not Christianity. That's churchianity. But that's not what God died for. God didn't die to create Christianity. God didn't die to create a church. God didn't die to create a club or a groupie or whatever it is. He came to get back each of you and many more to be with him. Done. That's it. That's it. He doesn't need church. Christianity didn't even happen until many, 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 many days after. And it says in Antioch was the first place that were called Christians. He doesn't need Christianity. He wants every one of you. Remember that. God doesn't have a need. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He wants you. Now think of that. Now think of the beauty of a marriage and a relationship where the person is needing you. That's actually really stressful. Unless you're a control freak and you love it and you have them you know, tied up in a basement as a slave. If I find out about that, I will take you out. But when it's a relationship of want, oh, man, that's killer. That's awesome. Husbands, if you're married in here, when your wife wants you, oh, my gosh, that is awesome. Wives in here, when your husband wants you, oh, my gosh, that is awesome, isn't it? Guys, God created sex. Say amen. This is awesome. Awesome. That want is a great feeling. Usually when we need to eat food, we don't typically care about the quality. It's like whatever it is, just ha. But when we want something, guess what it is? It's a hot fudge sundae. It's a cookie. It's a brownie. And if you're a Christian, it's a corner brownie. I saved the middle ones for Satan. I shouldn't say that because my wife likes the middle ones. That's terrible. <laughs> no, speaking of wanting, that's not going to happen. So let me go through a couple verses as we close in prayer. You go to the very last point that we need to choose whose name will define our life. And, and I want us to go into, you'll see in Acts chapter 2, verse 37.
going. We're almost there. Speaking of unconditional love, you guys are doing awesome so far. Do I have control now? There we go. Perfect. All right. Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? They learned about what had really gone on in their town. And they realized what really had happened. And they said, wait a second, I've got to do something different now. I've got to change. Continues on and says, Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in what? The name of Jesus. Did they have a pool that had, you know, J-E-S-U-S and you went swimming in it all the way through it in cursive? No. No, did they have a bathing suit like a Speedo that said Jesus on the back? No. What was it then? They had to completely give over will and submit. When you say baptize in the name of Jesus, that's a spiritual activity first. We do water baptism to recognize the spiritual change, not to force it. Because if anything physical could happen in our life to change our eternal destiny, we don't need Jesus. So we have to make the spiritual change first. And so he says that, baptize in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Wait a second. Wait a second. This is massive. I know, I'm freaking out having a nerd moment here. Right here. What's happening? The Spirit is now coming back into his people when it hadn't been there for thousands of years, when it left at the fall, when we said, I don't want to be your image or God, I want to be my own. I want to have some other God, some other spirit, some other power, or I'll do it on my own. And then guess what? When death was conquered, now God came back and the spirit would be able to dwell in his people again. The day of Pentecost was like an atom bomb in the spiritual world. And its ripples continue to this day. It's huge that that transformation would happen. It's incredible that the work of God would happen. So here's what I want us to look at as we close and Romans chapter 10. With your heart you believe and are made right with God. That's it. With your heart you believe and you're made right with God. With your mouth you say that Jesus is Lord and you're saved. Faith and works faith and works. I make the decision internally, get right with my God. I say, I've done it. It's done. It's done. Now that's the beginning. That's the beginning. That's like signing up for a race. You get your little badge on, you put it on, which we don't have membership here, so don't worry about it. And you get right with your creator. That's how God operates. When you see Jesus walking through that, if you go through and, and as your homework, read the Gospels, you don't see Jesus handing out papers going, hey, hey, go, just fill this out here. You can go ahead and come to me with heaven and make sure you fill it out right. Any typos and you're going to hell. Here you go, here you go, here you go. No. Not like I used to see in the mission field in Haiti when they would require written tests to illiterate people before they could get baptized because they preach in many churches down there, baptismal salvation or regeneration. You're not baptized, you're not a Christian. You can't get baptized until you take the written test. Oh, I'm sorry, you can't read, you're going to hell. That's not how our God works. That's not how he operates. So I want to challenge us all this morning. 
You can put your Bibles and, and notes away. And as we close, there is no difference between those who are Jews and those who are not. The same Lord is Lord of all. He richly blesses everyone who calls on him. Everyone. Let me change it. Not because of the meaning, but because of the impact. Anyone. You call, he answers. He's not like me on my cell phone. I will rarely answer a phone call. It's not because I don't love you. It's just because... I don't ever have my phone on me. But he will always answer. He will always answer. And, and sometimes the response for us is, as Christians or non-Christians or those who have fallen away from the faith in whatever way we want to call it, when we finally have to make that decision for him, we still question it and go, yeah, but God, all these horrible things have happened. I've done all these horrible things. Uh, let me repeat what he said in Romans 5.8. Let me just do the school field translation. He doesn't care. Just call on him. Well, what if I don't dial the number the right way? Dial the number. Call on him. What if I don't use the right voice? What if my voice cracks like, you know, I'm a teenager and I don't want that to happen in front of girls or whatever? God died at the depth of your sin. The thimble that you hold before him and say, I don't think you can forgive this. He looks at the ocean of his forgiveness and says, ha, pour it in with the rest of them. I forgive you. Do you really believe that? Think, think of the sin that you have in your life that you say, I don't know if God really can deal with that. I continue to be forgiven by him. I've known Jesus since I was five, six years old. And I don't know why he keeps forgiving me because with knowledge of him, I still did some horrifically stupid things. And he still kept me. If I was him, I'd have changed the locks in the house and kicked me out. Absolutely would have. But he kept me. So here's what I want. Everybody bow your heads. And I want to pray. I don't care where you are if you have or have not ever accepted Jesus or not or whatever, if you know your heart is not right and the name of Jesus is not the nature that you carry in your life and you are not his but seeking something else, I want to pray with you this morning. So I'm going to give just a few seconds here and I want you to raise your hand to pray with me this morning. If you would like to have whether that nature back or for the first time be committed to God, raise your hand this morning. Anyone else? Amen. It's time to submit to, to that nature and stop telling God, you change before I do. Or maybe it's time to say, okay, God, you said you can forgive it. Test him. I got 35 years of telling him no and then asking for forgiveness, and he does it. Anyone else this morning? All right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to change it up a little bit. Go ahead and pray with me. 
God, I thank you for your work on the cross. That you died for me, so I didn't have to. That you forgave me for things I never could have imagined being gone, but you removed the guilt. Thank you. Please forgive me again. Whatever it is that you've done, ask him quietly to forgive that. God, I thank you for that forgiveness, for that work. That your resurrection proves you are a God of amazing and powerful character.